Make sure you follow the show pages, Hood Health Report on Instagram and Facebook, and Hood Health Pod on Twitter. Also, make sure to rate and like the show, review it on Apple Podcasts, as well as Facebook. So today's episode, we are going to talk about the white savior complex. And just for reference, we define the white savior complex as a white person who acts to help non-white people with the help in some context perceived to be self-serving. So when you see these Instagram posts or these Facebook posts where there's a white person in this sea of little black children in Africa or Haiti or wherever they've done this summer service abroad to kind of garner them the attention and the likes and the, oh, they're such a good person because they did X, Y, Z for the summer. That's what we're going to talk about today. And I'll get into what led me there and some history as we move along in the episode. So first, I'd like to start out by saying that although I was always familiar with the white savior complex, I really got to see it up close and personal when I took my trip to Haiti for my master's research program back in the summer of 2018. And through it, I definitely got a glimpse of these white volunteers who had this God complex and feeling that the community was so much better off because of their time and service that they spent there. They were very snobbish about the living arrangements. So, so you know, at best in Haiti, where we lived when we were traveling to and from the airport, there was running water there. There was electricity. There was one TV in the house, but there was no indoor AC. We were advised not to brush our teeth with the sink water or to drink the sink water. There were coolers everywhere so that we could brush our teeth and make the foods and everything like that with the purified waters. And some of the white volunteers, they just found the need to always complain about all of the accommodations. And when we were on the ground doing our actual research, some of those places did not have running water and did not have electricity. So they were very exposed and thrown into an environment that was very poor and something that they weren't used to and they wanted to make it known that these were not the standards that they were used to. So this was my first example, my first big example of seeing up close the white savior complex. So with that being stated, we'll get into our current events. So these first couple of articles that I'm going to review are, of course, what led me to pick out this episode, pick out this topic to cover. So the first one is two top French doctors said on live TV that coronavirus vaccines should be tested on poor Africans, leaving viewers horrified. In the segment broadcast on the French TV channel LCI, Jean-Paul Mirat and Camille Locke raised the idea of testing new vaccines on impoverished African populations. Mira is the head of the intensive care department at the Cochin Hospital in Paris, while Locke is the research director of the French National Institute of Health and Medical Research. If I can be provocative, Mira said, shouldn't we do this in Shouldn't we do this study in Africa where there are no masks, no treatments, no intensive care? 
a bit like we did with some studies on AIDS. We tried things on prostitutes because they are highly exposed and do not protect themselves. Locke agreed, saying, you're right. We are actually thinking of a parallel study in Africa to use with the same kind of approach with BCG placebos, referring to the vaccinations against tuberculosis that is said to have appeared to protect children against infections, particularly respiratory ones. The footage triggered a deluge of outrage accusing the doctors of white colonial attitudes. Welcome to the West, where white people believe themselves to be so superior that racism and debility become commonplace. And so the French National Institute of Health is ranked as the world's second best research institution in the health sector, and they issued an official statement on Twitter saying that the proposal had been wrongly interpreted and included the hashtag fake news. So since then, you know, the doctors have formally apologized and said they were wrong for stating this on live TV, and they admit that it was... Well, no, I don't think they did admit that it was downright racist to have these type of views, but hey, what are you going to do? Anti-malarial drug to be tried on 3,000 COVID-19 patients in Detroit Hospital, says the U.S. Vice President. The anti-malarial drug, hydroxychloroquine, will be used in a trial covering 3,000 patients at a hospital in Detroit, Michigan and the results will be tracked in a formal study. Pence told a White House briefing on Sunday that they were more than prepared to make hydroxychloroquine available to doctors' offices and pharmacies in the Detroit area. President Donald Trump said the federal government has stockpiled 29 million doses of hydroxychloroquine. Last week, Trump said hydroxychloroquine was being administered to 1,100 patients in New York along with ZPAC, which is basically an antibacterial cocktail. The director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases told the White House briefing on Saturday there was no definitive information to be able to make any comment on whether the drug can be used to treat coronavirus. The U.S. is stepping up the development of treatments for COVID-19 patients, including experimenting with hydroxychloroquine and blood-related therapies as confirmed cases and death toll continue to rise. Problematic and sets off a few red flags. I know immediately people were like, oh wow, so another Tuskegee study. We're just going to give black people something and see how they respond to it, see how they work. We're not going to go about this quote-unquote the ethical way which you know that can also be debated with the fact that Detroit has had the highest number of um, I think African-American deaths for the coronavirus so some might say it would make sense to start there seeing as you know they don't have the resources to combat this this coronavirus so let's start our study there but that's the same notion that the two doctors in the previous article stated so we can see where that can be a pro bit problematic and also another thing is the stockpiling of all of the hydroxychloroquine now hydroxychloroquine is also a treatment for lupus and I have seen plenty of lupus patients stating that they haven't been able to get their chloroquine because 
of this ever since uh, Trump jumped the gun and stated that this would be an approved treatment for coronavirus people have been found overdosing over it they found doctors who maybe like dentists or doctors who have no business prescribing hydroxychloroquine writing prescriptions for themselves and their families so it's been a lot of cracking down on people procuring it illegally or unethically to try to prevent themselves from getting coronavirus because there is no study out there's no research on that yet despite what the president may say that's why they want to run this trial in Detroit so I'll definitely keep you guys updated on how that goes and the recruitment efforts as we spoke on the coronavirus episode they are trying to develop a vaccine but it'll be quite some time before that'll be released to the public because they have to make sure that people aren't reacting to it people aren't dying from it and that it's actually treating COVID-19 so whereas we know some of the barriers or some of the assets of hydroxychloroquine because it's already been in our community for quite some time just for different illnesses so treatments might come out a bit faster than a vaccine but I'll keep you updated on all of those things next up since we referenced it in regards to the first two articles we might as well give a review or um a little teaching moment in case people haven't heard of the Tuskegee study. So in 1932, the Public Health Service working with Tuskegee Institute began a study to record the natural history of syphilis in hopes of justifying treatment programs for blacks. It was called the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. The study initially involved 600 black men, 399 with syphilis, 201 who did not have the disease. Researchers told the men that they were being treated for bad blood, a local term used to describe several ailments, including syphilis, anemia, and fatigue. In truth, they did not receive the proper treatment needed to cure their illness. In exchange for taking part in the study, the men received free medical exams, free meals, and burial assistance. Although originally projected to last six months, the study actually went on for 40 years. So in July of 1972, an Associated Press story about the Tuskegee study caused a public outcry that led the Assistant Secretary for Health and Scientific Affairs to appoint an ad hoc advisory panel to review the study. The panel found that the men had agreed freely to be examined and treated. However, there was no evidence that researchers had informed them of the study or its real purpose. In fact, the men had been misled and had not been given all of the facts required to provide informed consent. The men were never given adequate treatment for their disease. And it became unethical when penicillin became the drug of choice for syphilis in 1947 and the researchers did not offer it to the subjects. The advisory panel found nothing to show that the subjects were given the choice of quitting the study, even when this new, highly effective treatment became widely used. So in October of 1972, the panel finally was brought to a halt after the advisory panel concluded that the Tuskegee study was ethically unjustified. The knowledge gained was sparse when compared with the risk the study posed for its subjects. 
In the summer of 1973, a class action lawsuit was filed on behalf of the study participants and their families. In 1974, a $10 million out-of-court settlement was reached. As part of the settlement, the U.S. government promised to give lifetime medical benefits and burial services to all living participants. The Tuskegee Health Benefit Program was established to provide these services. In 1975, wives, widows, and offspring were added to the program. In 1995, the program was expanded to include health as well as medical benefits. So, you know, I think this is very important to know because it is the basis for a lot of black and African American people's distrust in doctors and medicine. Because a lot of people still believe that these men did not initially have syphilis. And they were given syphilis. And with that being said, it takes us to our next article. U.S. Apologizes for Guatemala STD Experiments U.S. government medical researchers intentionally infected hundreds of people in Guatemala, including institutionalized mental patients with gonorrhea and syphilis without their knowledge or permission more than 60 years ago. Many of those infected were encouraged to pass the infection on to others as part of the study. About one-third of those who were infected never got adequate treatment. In 2010, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and the Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius offered extensive apologies for actions taken by the U.S. Public Health Service. The sexually transmitted disease inoculation study conducted from 1946 to 1948 in Guatemala was clearly unethical. Although these events occurred more than 64 years ago, we are outraged that such reprehensible research could have occurred under the guise of public health. We deeply regret that it happened and we apologize to all of the individuals who were affected by such aberrant research practices. In addition to the apology, the U.S. is setting up commissions to ensure that human medical research conducted around the globe meets rigorous ethical standards. U.S. officials are also launching investigations to uncover exactly what happened during the experiments. The Guatemala experiments, which were conducted between 1946 and 48, never provided any useful information and the records were hidden. The Guatemalan project was co-sponsored by the U.S. Public Health Service, the NIH, the Pan American Health Sanitary Bureau, and the Guatemalan government. The experiments involved 696 subjects, male prisoners and female patients in the National Mental Health Hospital. So this case is real fucked up because going back to the Tuskegee study, there were so many laws and acts and different steps you had to take to do research on participants on human subjects to make sure that it is beneficial to them to make sure that no harm is being done and as soon as we recognize harm being done we stop the subject and when we're talking about globally I guess since then they've put in extra measures to make sure that the Institutional Review Board, the IRB, catches and highlights all of these different things that could be used of harm or could be used to take advantage of these poorer nations and these people who don't have the health access. 
I know for when I went over to Haiti conducting research, I had a lot of back and forth with the IRB, just making sure that every I was dotted, every T was crossed to make sure that I wasn't going abroad to just prey on these poor people because they have no other options. American with no medical training ran Center for Malnourished Ugandan Kids. 105 died. Ten years ago, Renee Bach left her home in Virginia to set up a charity to help children in Uganda. One of her first moves was to start a blog chronicling her experiences. Among the most momentous, on a Sunday morning in October 2011, a couple from a village some distance away showed up at Box Center carrying a small bundle. When I pulled the covering back, my eyes widened. For under the blanket lay a small but very, very swollen pale baby girl. Her breaths were frighteningly slow. The baby's name was Patricia and she was nine months old. Bach went on to write that Patricia had fallen sick three weeks earlier but her parents had been unable to find anyone closer to home who could cure her. Then, wrote Bach, one of their relatives told them about a hospital with a white doctor. Except Bach was not a doctor. She was a 20-year-old high school graduate with no medical training. And not only was her center not a hospital, at the time it didn't employ a single doctor. Yet, from 2010 through 2015, Bach says she took in 940 severely malnourished children, and 105 of them died. Now Bach is being sued in Ugandan civil court. How could a young American with no medical training even contemplate caring for critically ill children in a foreign country? To understand, it helps to know that the place where Bach set up her operation had already become a hub of American volunteerism by the time she arrived. U.S. missionaries had set up a host of charities there, and soon American teens raised in mostly evangelical churches were streaming in to volunteer at them. Bach was one of these teens. On her first trip in 2007, she worked at a missionary-run orphanage, staying on for nine months. Once back home in Virginia, Bach, now 19 years old, came to a life-changing conclusion. In an interview with NPR, Bach says it felt like a calling from God. Funded by money raised through church circles back home, Bach rented a large house in one of the poorest districts and began testing out options, including starting a program to serve a free hot meal to neighborhood children. Twice a week, about 1,000 of them would line up at Bach's house to receive a bowl of food. Bach named her charity Serving His Children. Word of her feeding program spread, and later, she got a call from a staffer at a local children's hospital asking if she could help out with, with several severely malnourished children. Bach says the staffer told her that the, from a medical standpoint, these kids had been stabilized. They just needed to be fed back to health. Could Bach take them in? She says she agreed to help the children, and before long, she came to feel that this was God's plan for her. Turning the house into a center where malnourished children and their mothers could live while the youngsters recuperated. Complete with free rations of the special foods they would need, the medicines doctors had prescribed, and lessons for their mothers on nutrition and the Bible. 
It wasn't until 2011 when a registered nurse came to volunteer that Bach was called out for basically her posing as a doctor. So the nurse was taken aback to realize just how sick these children were. They weren't just malnourished. They had complicated illnesses. Pneumonia, intestinal parasites, tuberculosis. Many were in stage 4 HIV. Almost every week a child would die. In 2011, of the 129 children Bach took in, 20% died. Nearly a third of them in the first 48 hours. In 2012, the death rate among those inpatient cases was 18%. By 2013, Bach had hired two doctors and the death rate was 10%, which would still be high to these international aid group standards, so she was still not necessarily complying with the guidelines of her to have this hospital-slash-malnourishment center over in Uganda. Bach, however, still feels like although it wasn't an ideal situation, that she was a last resort for a lot of these children. So she doesn't necessarily regret taking these children in, even though they needed um, more care for their complicated issues than just to be fed back to health, which was the initial agreement. UN Peacekeeping has a sexual abuse problem. An academic paper published in December by the Journal of International Peacekeeping suggests that many poor Haitian women are struggling with the long-term emotional and financial consequences of raising a child born from rape of a peacekeeper father. For years, the Associated Press and other media outlets have published credible reports of sexual abuse and exploitation by the UN Peacekeeping Force in Haiti which concluded its operation in 2017. Sexual exploitation and abuse is a broad term that includes crimes like rape, but also violations of the UN's ban on sexual relationships that include abuse of position of vulnerability. There have also been reports on rape by African Union forces in Somalia, French and UN peacekeepers in Central African Republic, and UN troops in the Democratic Republic of Congo. While the UN can investigate allegations of sexual abuse and rape, peacekeeper accountability is up to the country that sends the troops. As a result, prosecutions have been rare even after media coverage and outrage. In recent years, the UN has stepped up its effort to tackle the issue and push on the troop-contributing countries. In 2015, the UN began publishing the nationalities of soldiers alleged to have sexual exploited and abused women and girls. It has also established a trust fund and programs for psychological care, job training, and other services for victims, including children fathered by peacekeepers. In 2017, the UN established a global victim rights advocate and embedded victim advocates within peacekeeping missions. Seems like they did everything shy of actually arresting the rapist but all right UN efforts have led to some improvements by troop and police contributing countries such as more training and troop vetting ahead of deployment but most countries legal system needs to be updated to better hold soldiers accountable for their behavior when deployed
In the meantime, it's crucial that the UN, the media, and civil society groups continue to exert pressure on countries that contribute peacekeepers to respond to abuse allegations more seriously and more transparently. For decades, desperate civilians have sought UN peacekeepers to alleviate some of the worst horrors of our times. Survivors of violence, displacement, and poverty shouldn't have to fear that those charged with protecting them will contribute to their suffering. So you know I like to leave off my episodes on um, a lighter note. So this last article I found is called Dismantling White Supremacy in Nonprofits, a Starting Point. And the writer, Jarrell Skinner Roy, wrote a non-exhaustive list of how to begin the hard work of dismantling white supremacy in the nonprofit sector. Number one is know and explicitly acknowledge the history, existence, and pervasiveness of white supremacy. White folks, specifically white cisgender straight men, hold a disproportionate amount of power, wealth, and influence. This is in no way surprising knowing the history of this country that has been founded on genocide, violence, and exploitation of indigenous people, black people, and immigrants. Many, if not all, of the social services, education, and other unmet needs that nonprofits work tirelessly to address largely exist because of the lasting ramifications of colonization, slavery, segregation, redlining, mass incarceration, and many other manifestations of white supremacy. Without this explicit acknowledgement, our work can unintentionally uplift white supremacist ideology and do more harm to the very communities we hope to serve. We must do our homework and make sure we fully understand the continued impact of this country's history as well as the intricacies of the concepts such as oppression, privilege, and intersectionality. Number two, enough with the deficit-based narratives and language. It is important to not place the blame on any perceived personal or group deficits. Systemic oppression is what leads to unequal playing fields and creates these societal gaps that we are all familiar with, not manufactured deficits. Though well-intentioned, nonprofits often peddle deficit-based narratives by writing and talking about all of the resources, knowledge, and skills that communities lack and how these deficits are the reason for their struggles. One small but crucial step, stop labeling students and communities as at-risk. Number three, be cautious with the overuse of negative statistics. The overuse of negative statistics about communities can play into a deficit-based narratives mentioned above and also have grave unintended consequences on individuals and communities. Additionally, please be sure that the statistics are both accurate and holistic. Too often we accept negative statistics as facts without any question or having seen any sources. Number four, double down on commitments to ethical storytelling. A personal story from an individual whom you've served can be powerful, but we must be keenly aware of how we might be perpetuating voyeurism or white savior mentality. Parading trauma through mail appeals or events might help, might help spread awareness or raise money, but it could have a long-term negative effect on both an individual and society's view of that community. We need to be responsible with our storytelling. Eradicate all language about giving a voice to the voiceless 
is very problematic because there's really no such thing as the voiceless. There are only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. And number five, consider who wields power and influence within your organization and who doesn't. The workers should look like the community that they are serving. An all-white male board should not be in charge of, for instance, the UN Rape Victims Resources. They don't have a connection. They don't appeal to that demographic. So we need people that look like the community that we're serving to head these organizations and to do the work in the streets. So that concludes our episode, The White Savior Complex, episode 23 of Hood Health Report. Also, it is National Public Health Week, so make sure you check out the different day's themes and retweet or like those posts. As always, stay hood and stay healthy. Bye.